Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam, as always, and I'm extremely lucky today to be talking to the creator of Ruby on Rails, David Heinemeier Hansen. How's it going, David? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Um, so to kick things off, I kind of just wanted to ask you, do you remember when you first um, kind of discovered software design and object-oriented design and what that experience was like for you? Um, well, it kind of depends on where you're stepping into the timeline. I think I did my first transcription of a program from a magazine when I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. But I had no clue whatsoever about software design or whatever. I was just punching in codes that were supposed to make me a snake game or something like that on the uh, on the Amstrad. And then I had another um, sort of... Had a, number of interactions with programming over the years. Um, I had a lot of friends that were programmers, and at that time, I kind of, uh, and by that time, I mean when I was, what, 15, 14, um, got involved with the demo scene on the Amiga. Um, people were making these really cool demos, um, which was basically just kind of like music videos made with code. And... Uh, a number of my friends were involved with that scene, but they were all programming in Assembler um, or C or something. And I kind of got some exposure to that and decided that was absolutely enough for me. That was not the kind of programming that I was interested in doing. So it wasn't really until I got interested in working with the web that I came back to programming as something that I was going to do. Um, and that even that started as not something I was going to do. It started more of a reaction, again, of trying to work with other programmers and being frustrated about them not just being able to implement what I wanted implemented. So I ended up teaching myself just a bit of... First, ASP.NET, I think, was maybe the very first thing I uh, got going with, and then, um, then PHP. But, again, that introduction was not at all about learning the craft of software. It was, hey, how do I get this stuff on a web page and make it dynamic? And, hey, how can I add a comment form to, to this article I wrote? Um, so I'd say um, that went on for a couple of years. And then maybe in the early 2000s, I started working on a, a brand new gaming site from scratch um, in PHP. And that was sort of where I started just caring more. I remember I read Code Complete and, and a bunch of other of those early books on, on programming practices and so on, thinking, hey, this is actually pretty cool. Like, I can be interested in this somewhat for its own sake, not just for because I want a program out of it. But I'd say where it really took off was just before I started working with Ruby. Um, again, I, I'd been doing some PHP and I'd been doing a, a bunch of Java, um, JSP pages actually for, uh, for a company in, um, in Copenhagen. And I was just getting more and more interested in it. And I think then finally sort of playing around with a bunch of different things in Java and, and PHP, it just started to stir a lot of thoughts in my mind about how things should be. And I started getting an appreciation for beautiful code and well-structured code. And, and then I found Ruby. And I think that was really the transition point where things went from, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting. I, I kind of want to learn something to full-on, holy shit, this is awesome. Uh, what a wonderful world programming is. What a fantastic programming language Ruby is. And, oh, my God, I'm having so much fun just programming, even regardless of what I am programming. I mean, obviously that helps too, but I, I fell in love with it for its own sake with Ruby. Awesome. Yeah. Like the reason I ask is because I kind of distinctly remember for me, like kind of like you, you know, I, I've been programming uh, in some way, shape or form since, you know, I was a kid just messing around with a computer, just messing around with QBasic and then, you know, learning how to put together HTML sites and stuff. But then I remember picking up the the Uncle Bob book, Agile Patterns, Principles and Practices or whatever it's called. And I remember reading through that book and it was like a whole new entire world of like programming had opened to me. So I kind of got like totally sucked into that world and it was like, I was obsessed with it because I felt like I'd like finally found this thing that was going to make me be able to write like perfect code or without having to think about it. You know what I mean? Like I thought I had found this like silver bullet or this world that had kind of opened up to me. And over time, that's kind of gone away for me a little bit. Like I'm still really interested in that stuff, but I'm finding my opinions. I feel like they're maturing to where I can kind of 
go back to the basics a little bit more and stop thinking about hexagonal architecture or domain-driven design or command-oriented interface or, you know, any of these kind of like technical silver bullets that have these kind of brand names associated with them and just thinking about writing simple, clear code. So the reason I ask that is because I see like a, a similarity between that kind of learning path that I had and basically every other hobby I've ever had where there's always this kind of phase at the beginning where you're just doing it for the fun of it and you don't really know too much about the you know real detailed side of things but then eventually you pick up on like some nugget of information that you kind of like hold on to and start diving into super technical things so i know like when i was learning to play guitar for example it was like first i was just like my dad would show me some chords and some riffs and stuff and it was fun but then i like would pick up a book on music theory and i was trying to learn all these different scales and modes and understanding what notes am i allowed to play over these chords and what notes am i allowed to play over those chords and you kind of build up this like elitist attitude around it almost but eventually you kind of lose it again and go back to the basics and realize that everything is about kind of a a bigger idea than just the technical things that you're doing you know what i mean does that make sense is that something that you've seen in other aspects of things that you're interested in or other hobbies yeah absolutely i think that that is the natural progression of learning you sort of realize, first you're just, uh, you don't know what you don't know. You're completely ignorant about the world. Um, you're just sort of bashing at the keyboard and hoping that uh, that something works, right? Like that's when you're at the stage where you're just like, you're changing things because you don't really know why. You just think, hey, maybe this change will make it work. You're not understanding the underlying mechanics of the system. So then you step forward from that stage and and you discover oh there's this body of knowledge like there are many people before me who have thought deep thoughts about programming let me learn everything there is to learn about that and you discover all these things and and it's very easy to come become enamored with them at that point because they're opening your eyes like you're now seeing things you did not see before Ooh, this is this kind of pattern oh this is this kind of approach and that's a very um seductive process it's just uh, incredibly compelling to learn about new concepts and ideas when you arrive at it from this very blank slate. And the flip side of that, perhaps, is that you owe perhaps these um, this knowledge that you've discovered, or you feel like you owe this knowledge you've discovered, your complete and total allegiance. And that then leads to thinking, well... There is all this knowledge. Now it's just about figuring out how, how do I apply it exactly as, as prescribed, right? And that phase takes a long time, I think. For, for many people, perhaps, that's the phase that they just decide that they're happy in. Um, and then I think there's also a, a sort of phases beyond that where you realize um, it's wonderful to have a body of knowledge. It's wonderful to have this literature on the techniques and principles of programming But the reason we haven't absolved ourselves of the need to program is because, to some extent, all programs are different. Like, patterns are, of course, all about how they're similar, but a pattern isn't just a drag and drop, right? Like, a pattern is is about how, oh, this is a recurrent problem. Here are some of the trade-offs and concerns and and techniques that have been used on similar problems in the past to, to solve that. But every problem is unique. And... I think it's just, there, becomes, there comes a point where you feel like you have a, a pretty good understanding of a, a wide variety of these principles and tools, and then it becomes about other things. Then it's not just the sort of, oh, look, here's a perfect opportunity for me to apply a command pattern. Then it becomes, hey, how can I write this as simple as possible? And that doesn't detract anything from patterns. It doesn't detract anything from the body of knowledge, because you use all those things to arrive at the simplest, clearest way to, to write something. But it's kind of a different approach. It's the sort of, you're not doing it to, to flatter yourself. I think there's a lot of programmers, that, me too, I'm sure. Most people, most of the time, they just, they like to feel how smart they are. And the more advanced, the more intricate patterns and concepts you can apply to something, the smarter you feel. I think that's, I don't know if that's a controversial statement at this point. I'm kind of lost track of what is and what isn't controversial at this point. But uh, it doesn't feel controversial to me to recognize that there's a basic human 
feedback loop where if you can master something difficult and you can apply that difficult thing, that feels good, right? So that is a sort of self-reinforcing loop where it then becomes quite uh, compelling to keep looking for these ever more complicated, sophisticated techniques that you can then apply to the daily drudgery. And, I mean, again, it has some appeal. I've, I've, I've had that feedback look. I had it happen where I looked at some problem and, and I applied some fancy, um, and by fancy I mean intricate, sophisticated, uh, complicated patterns to the problem, and the problem was solved in a way that was good, right? But I've also done it the other way around, where I've applied this complicated, sophisticated pattern to something, and... It worked under the definition of working that sort of the pattern fit, the coach just wasn't better. And I think that that's the underlying and ultimate test that I now spend the vast majority of my time um, focusing on is, uh, am, I, am I improving the code? Am I making it more clear? Is this writing better? Like I had a... I did a keynote at uh, RailsConf this year where I was, t- where I was talking about um, the difference between software engineering and, um, and software writing. And I really like the metaphor of writing for, for what we do as programmers and to consider uh, all the programs we write as, as drafts and then we have the power to improve them. And usually, if you sort of indulge that metaphor, how do you improve writing? Do you make it more ornate? Do you choose bigger, more complicated words? Do you have more run-on sentences? No, you don't. You write simpler. At least that's the school of good writing that I follow, is that simpler, clearer writing is better writing. Um, and that that's actually really hard. Like, yeah, it's great that you know uh, the dictionary and, and all the big, complicated, fancy words, um, but most writing doesn't call for that. And your writing is worse off for indulging that too much. And I understand, too, how that can sound like anti-intellectualism or anti-knowledge or anti-education or what have you. That's not where it's coming from. Because sometimes that big word is, is the right word. And that's how you cut down a whole paragraph to a single sentence and it's clearer and it's better. Same in programming. Sometimes... That intricate pattern is just the thing you need. What I'm saying is, a lot of times it's not. (laughs) Perhaps most of the times it's not. And there's a lot of programming that's made worse by programmers wanting to feel smart. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's interesting that you're someone who obviously is like a proponent of like the active record pattern. It's like one of the, you know, most important components of Rails. But at the same time, like domain driven design is listed in like your top five uh, books that you uh, influenced, you know, the way you write software. And a lot of people would say that like, using like a domain driven design approach and trying to build a, a rich uh, domain that really models, you know, whatever business process you're trying to convert into software just completely doesn't mix with active record at all. Like, what do you think about that? I think that's a very modernistic view of the world that there's basically this sort of one approach and the trade-offs of concrete programming do not apply to, to that, that, um, domain-driven design is all about just having plain old Ruby objects and they should be completely absolved from dealing with the filthy practicality of talking to a database. That should just be an abstractable concern. Um, and that's how we achieve this purity of vision, this purity of the domain uh, model and, and a rich domain model. I think that is complete and utter bullshit. I think you can absolutely be informed by domain-driven design and a inclination to build a rich domain language and still recognize that that's just one principle you're applying. That's just one factor. There's so many other factors too, including sort of the comfort of the actual code you have to write. Some of the stuff that I've seen, you, you mentioned the hexagon pattern and so forth. Some of the stuff that I've seen that the concoctions and the mental backflips that people sometimes indulge in because they want to keep things pure. I just shake my head and go, dude, it just, it doesn't matter that much. Purity just isn't that important. And I think that that's where, that's where all Rails comes from. 
we do not value purity in any shape or form. <laughs> um, there's not one principle that is above all other principles. Um, there's not one design paradigm or programming paradigm that's above all other paradigms. Rails is absolutely a mixed pattern of everything that is good for that particular purpose. Like a lot of people, for example, if you take the approach to views, we recommend by default in Rails, that's basically PHP. It's just ERB is, is the Ruby version of PHP. It's all inline statements, and it's real Ruby. It's not sort of boiled down to something. The helpers that you have are in a flat namespace. That is PHP, right? Like, it's not object-oriented at, at that level. And a lot of people take offense to that because they have this pure vision of sort of, this should be one thing. Everything should be object-oriented or, or whatever. Everything should be struck in this way. And I've tried a lot of different approaches to view programming. And I found that the PHP model is fucking awesome. When I consider all the concerns that go into how I deal with the view, I like the PHP approach the best. Again, that doesn't mean I now have to apply that principle to the rest of the code base. I would never structure my models like that. I don't want a single flat namespace just fill functions for my model. That, that doesn't sound good at all. And it's very hard to reason with. So I don't follow that for models, right? We do something else there. And we do something else in, in a lot of cases where we looked at this specific concrete problem and thought, what's a good, what's a good approach here? All tools are on the table. All paradigms are on the table. We can mix and match however we want. It's funny. One of the um, sayings we have uh, in my family when, when we're thinking about something that's uh, sort of, I don't know, out there or whatever, is like, do you know what? We can do whatever we want. You know why? We're adults. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. When The same thing with programming. You don't have to sort of stay in allegiance to something. You're not cheating on object-oriented programming just because you choose to program your views in a procedural fashion. That's not a problem. Same thing with sort of um, picking elements of, uh, of the functional paradigm. I mean, Ruby, I think, is a wonderful language because of that. Ruby is such a grab app of taking the best bits of all sorts of different paradigms. Oh, yeah, that's great. Let's have a dash of Perl. Let's mix it in with a splash of small talk. And, oh, these functional um, elements over here, let's get those in. Let's stir it all together, and it's great, right? The perfect opposite to that is something like small talk, right? Small talk is completely uh, modernistic approach to programming. Here is this, what do they have, like five different uh, keywords or something. Everything is just a, a, an object and a, and a message. It's incredibly pure. Same thing with Lisp, right? Like these things are, are very pure in their um, sort of approach, but they also require complete allegiance to that purity. And I found that just does not fit my brain very well at all. I don't want complete purity and allegiance to just one principle. There are so many great principles in the world. Um, I want to taste the best of everything. For sure. I think the interesting thing, right, is you talk about like purity and a lot of people will associate, you know, that word with like, you know, good design is like pure design. And I don't know what any of that means. Like that all just seems like kind of hand wavy, abstract BS that doesn't really have a definition. But to me, you know, a well-designed piece of software is a piece of software that's, you know, easy for the developers to continue to work with over time, to continue to update as requirements change or maintain or whatever, right? And I think when you look at that from like a really practical, grounded point of view, a lot of the time that doesn't mean, you know, decoupling everything and adding layers of indirection and making it easy to swap things that will probably never get swapped. Like one of the uh, best examples is um, like sending an email when like someone registers for your service or whatever, right? A lot of people will tell you that, you know, uh, whatever is responsible for like, you know, saving that user should fire some event that's being listened for and some totally decoupled part of the system. And that responds to that event and sends that email because you don't want to couple the act of, you know, sending the email to registering the new user. But is that really like 
more maintainable? Is that easier for someone to open the file and understand than just like two lines of code that says like, you know, register user, send them the welcome email. And it might be more coupled, but isn't that more maintainable, you know? I think that's a completely fair question to post. And it's funny you should pick that example because there's one of those examples where I, for a long time, have been on the purity side of the fence where it's like, oh, that feels gross to have a model, for example, view, know about triggering an email because that email um, sort of plays with the view and so forth. It's almost like having the model call back into a, into a controller. Um, and I, I've, I've relaxed on that. And partly I've relaxed on that on practical terms. One of the reasons why... It, at least in Rails, used to be a bad idea to trigger an email in a, um, let's say, a model callback, was because taking an, uh, sending an email could take quite a while in the grand scheme of something. And if you're calling something in a callback, it's happening inside of a database transaction. Like, that shit's got to be fast. If you're holding things up because you're talking to Postfix or whatever, that's not fast enough, and you're going to be in a world of hurt. Um, recently, Rails has adopted um, Active Job as a default part of the stack, System we can um, sort of send jobs for anything, and the number or the primary motivating case was that um, sending emails should happen in, in, in an asynchronous job-based way. And now, if you're basically just spawning a job from inside a model, you don't have the practical concerns anymore. So it's funny to me to examine that case because it's one of those cases where sometimes your justification for purity is actually founded on practical concerns, but you're justifying it sort of more from the purity aspect of things because that makes you feel better. When I realized that I was justifying not sending emails from models um, on more of a more of a practical scheme, right? Like it just wouldn't work. You couldn't, if you didn't do it asynchronously, it was just bad design because it would lock up tables and it would create poor performance and so on and so forth. Um, I still think there's, I mean, even purity in its own sense is, is just one of the paradigms you can use. And I think it's a helpful paradigm at times to consider things like MVC um, to be an overall idea of how you can uh, separate your application. If you're just mixing in views into models and them calling controllers willy-nilly all over the place, yeah, you're probably going to end up with a big ball of mess. But... What I've also found is that most concepts of purity work a lot better when they have an outlet where they can let out the edge cases <laughs> because there are always edge cases and then there are always cases where, the, where it flips, where doing something because it's pure is worse, not better, it's worse. And that does not render the, this conversation is getting a little abstract, but that does not render the sort of, general approach to the purity, uh, a bad idea. It does not say that structuring your things into these uh, buckets like MVC, for example, is a bad idea and, and it doesn't hold any value whatsoever. No, it does. Like 95% of the time, it's probably the right thing to do and your application will be better for it. But if you try to force it to be 100%, it's worse. Like you end up in a really bad situation. So, yeah, I think it, it's... Uh, it's funny because at the same time I'm sort of I'm advocating something that sounds like oh yeah just pick the right tool at the right time and I fucking hate that saying with a passion I just want to shoot it in the head um, because it's such a vapid oh everything's equally good uh, everything is 100% subjective kind of thing we can't teach each other anything because oh well every problem is is um, 100% unique fuck no it isn't like we're not that unique and we're not that snowflakey but I think that's why it's, it's, it, it's sometimes hard to sort of talk about this because it isn't just this one thing I can say. You can't just come up with the one rule, right? And then that rule is going to govern it all. Um, not even a rejection of purity. You mentioned the word model a couple of times and related to this conversation, I feel like that's an interesting avenue to go down because I feel like when people talk about MVC a lot of the time, they're thinking that model always means an object that inherits from you know active record that's it and i don't think that's true what do you think of course it's not true <laughs> that's a very i don't know why you would actually let me try to step into the mindset because i do want to understand why because it is a common at least a common critique 
of Rails. Uh, and because it's a common critique, I will take it on face value and also believe that it is a common practice. And I could see that, so we have app models, and when you uh, Rails generate model, uh, it generates an active record-based model. Why does it do that? Well, because uh, these active record-based models, they sort of they have some consequences when you're generating them, right? You have to create the database table, and you have to create a bunch of other things with them, so it makes sense to have a generator. Now, if you then think your entire application has to flow through generators, and you cannot basically create a new file yourself, yeah, we're going to have a problem. Like that's not that's not a good way of of working. Again, I can understand how we get there, and perhaps the many tutorials of Rails are at fault here too, because a lot of the times, especially in the beginning, yes, your model is primarily consisting of these active record um, active records, right? Um, but we also, again, with the outlet, as we just talked about, there's plenty of times where that's not the case. Like if I look at the model folder in in my apps, we fill up plain old Ruby objects. But, I mean, it goes deeper than that and there are more sort of different approaches. One approach is then to say, well, I just want like my active records, like they're not even models, right? Like that's even further to to jump into that. Like I don't even want my active record uh, models to be considered models. They're basically just data um, active objects. Like, yeah, it's just like it a coincidence the... that active record is how you're retrieving stuff from the database. Exactly, the exactly. And, and we should not put any domain logic in them. They should just be um, they should just be the data and nothing else. I think that is complete hogwash as well. Like the, the appeal of the active record pattern is that when you do have a model that is backed by a database table, it's a really nice thing to mix both data and behavior. Again, I don't understand how that's controversial, but uh, I think it becomes controversial because people want other things and testing is one of those things that kind of complicates matters, right? Like I think that's one of the, as we just talked about the practical concerns sometimes bubble up and inform these purity arguments, even though yeah, yeah. the argument of purity itself is, is kind of is hollow. Um, because I think as we were talking about with, oh, actually sending email from a model is not so bad when you can do it through asynchronous jobs. Um, and having your domain model interface with the database is actually not that bad if you follow a variety of techniques on how you can do fast testing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we bring up like the active record versus like, you know, just data access sort of thing, because in the communities that I'm kind of involved in a lot of time, there's a big conversation about like the active record pattern versus like the data mapper pattern. And we have different ORMs for each one. And people who are kind of proponents of the data mapper approach are also the same people who are telling you to decouple everything and nothing should depend on any concrete class and everything should be talking through these narrow interfaces and everything should be swappable at runtime because you just never know when you might be switching out your MySQL database for API calls to a third-party service and the application should be ignorant to the fact that that has to happen, blah, blah, blah. I think the blah, blah, blah part is the most important uh, description <laughs> of that. Uh, but you did a very nice job, I think, of representing that um, in, in just the right condescending tone that I would have used myself to, because I think it's absolutely an other hogwash. I think like it's true, right? Because well, people will say, um, you know, you need to use a, a data mapper ORM or, you know, roll your own like thing, because... If your domain models map directly to database tables, you know, that just shows some like ignorance in your understanding of your domain or you're not optimizing your database the right way because, you know, what if some model could be represented by three database tables and that's the best way to store it in the database? Well, active record won't work for that because it's expecting, you know, each model to map to one database row. And, and it's used as like a tool to make me feel like I'm somehow, you know, a bad programmer because I'm not worried about doing things this way. Uh, when really for 99% of like everything I've ever done, it has worked out to be extremely practical and convenient that a model maps to one row in a database table somewhere. Yeah, I think that that's the, um, that's a purity argument, right? Like the purity argument does not really consider practical. It does not really consider, um, hey, it worked out well most of the time. And it does not consider trade-offs well. Um, and the trade-off is with the active record approach is it's just more productive. It's just easier to do. It's just quicker to deliver functionality through this. It's a shortcut. And it's a shortcut that works exceedingly well the majority of the time. And that's annoying to somebody who views the world 
through a prism of purity. Like it, it does not address all issues. And here comes the, the, the kicker. You have to adjust your mental model to fit the tools at hand. And I think that that's one of the things that really gets a lot of people's go. That, like, what? I would pervert my beautiful domain model to just because the database is constructed in a certain way? These things should be completely ignorant of each other, and I should be able to devise my beautiful domain model um, without having to think of the constraints of the database, right? Fuck, I mean, again, it, it's one of those things where you just go like, dude, I don't know what your motivation is. Well, I do, actually, I'm examining the motivation, so I suppose I do know that your motivation of this purity argument as though you should not have your, your beautiful domain model perverted is just a misplaced sense of um, priority. Like, here's a pattern that is a shortcut. I make no excuses for that. Um, and sometimes I even shove a couple of extra um, columns into a, uh, into a table that then becomes a model where I think, yeah, that could have been a different model if it hadn't been so fucking convenient to make it an active record. But it is. So <laughs> I, I am. So The yeah. thing is, like you said, that's a shortcut, right? But the thing is, like, most of the time it's a shortcut that doesn't even have consequences. And people will try and convince you that – Anytime you use Active Record, you're asking for trouble down the road. Um, I feel like there must be thousands of large applications running at scale that people are still maintaining without, you know, wanting to pull their eyes out every day that are built with Active Record. Like, I don't know for sure, but I assume GitHub uses a lot of Active Record. Shopify must use a lot of Active Record. Yes, and here's the problem, though. Um, I mean, we still have Basecamp. We have the original Basecamp still running. It's called Basecamp Classic. It has tens of thousands of users on it. We're still maintaining it and, and keeping it uh, up to date. It's a 10-plus-year-old Rails application. But that's not even... I, I think the interesting observation in that uh, is that the natural tendency of all big code bases that live for a long time is toward entropy. They all degrade. Like, I don't care how the fuck you put it together, it all degrades. So it makes it very easy and convenient to point, hey, this uh, big app after five years doesn't feel as agile anymore as when I first put it together. Well, whoopity-doo, are you really surprised about that? I'm not. Um, but it's an unfair comparison. Because what you're comparing right now is if I rewrote everything from scratch, knowing everything I know today, I could put it together in a better way. Well, I can't whoopity do. That's not where the problem is. It reminds me of, I was just reading this other article about um, uh, CSS and uh, SAS, and they were pointing to the example of Etsy. So Etsy apparently had, like, what was it, 400,000 lines of CSS or something, and they thought, oh, well, this is bad. <laughs> okay, of course it's bad. And then they rewrote it using SAS or some other approach to CSS. It doesn't even matter what the paradigm was, right? They rewrote it using some paradigm. Look how much better it is now. Yeah, you fucking rewrote it. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the part that really gets me when it comes to a lot of these patterns. And, yeah, and it's, it's not better take, because you used a different tool. It's better exactly. because you did the it's, rewrite. It's, it's better because of the rewrite. And by better, I mean... It's clearer in that moment. You have not tested it again over, over 10 years. I'd like to see that 10-year-old hexagon pattern designed application on how wonderful it looks today and if, if it truly really still smells like roses. Oh, I, I, I don't think it does. I've, it. <laughs> I've seen people, myself included, try and do that up front. And in my opinion, what you end up doing is writing a bunch of code that exists for a bunch of speculative reasons like you're speculating, what if we need to do this? What if we need to do that? We have to introduce all these layers and all this in direction without actually having like a real hard justification for it yet. And if for some reason your application changes in a way that you didn't predict, now you have all this other extra cruft and bullshit to change that you wouldn't have had to change if you wrote 5% of the code and just used the tools that the framework gave you. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's um, it's one of those things where a lot of programmers, I don't know whether it used to be a bigger problem or it was a bigger problem in a different domain or whatever it is, whatever the reasons and the motivations and, and the scars that people brought into the debate, but there's this intense fear of the concrete, of the concrete class. I, I came of 
age as a programmer in Ruby where that just never was an issue. You can take any class you want and you can stop it and you can mock it and you can do whatever you want. Everything is live at the runtime and yours to pick apart. I suppose if you came from an era of um, Java, for example, where everything is fucking bolted down lest you steal the silverware, um, then you have perhaps a, a different uh, different view on things. And maybe it's just more of a sort of personality thing and how you see things. But I, I think that there is absolutely a big schism there, a big division between the fear of the concrete and not. Like, I love the concrete. Like, unless I have a very compelling, concrete, immediate case for the abstract um, and for the indirection, give me the concrete. Give me the concrete class right now, not through all sorts of other pieces of intermission. And the, the funny thing about that, too, is I think about things like, you know, like the open-closed principle where uh, there's this this magical world where any piece of code that you write uh, once the tests pass, you should never have to open that file and, and change it ever again. And if you do, then you designed it wrong. You know what I mean? Like this code does what it was supposed to do the first time. And, and even if your system doesn't necessarily need that to do that anymore, well, you should just be able to write a new class that does it. You shouldn't have to just change a couple of lines in this class. And I think that's complete bullshit. Like you have to change code all the time. Like I, I think what I, and that's the, that's why it's a debate is that all these principles, I can see aspects and glimmers and reflections of them that I can nod my head to and say is true. So, for example, for uh, sort of the change of code, I think it's a, it's a powerful concept to think of things as um, having different rates of change. And, and I do like that. I do like the idea that let's, let's sort of collect things that change at the same rate of pace in the same place. Um, but, of course... Uh, you still have to fundamentally uh, change everything <laughs> at some point, right? If you wanted to do something different, you got to change it. Um, so it's one of those things where, where once you codify it, there's just a real danger in codification, which is perhaps outweighed in the majority of cases by the reward we get of actually having the knowledge available as a piece of reference materials, as a piece of literature. But when you codify it, you also have a tendency to elevate it to a point where it's often elevated far beyond its meaningful stature and it gets treated like a law. A lot of these things that are codified are actually called laws. Um, (laughs) So the law of the meter, for example, right? That's one of the things I've been railing about um, a fair amount. Um, But yeah. So um, some people would probably, give me your opinion on this. Uh, you guys had a, the original version of Basecamp, and then you know a few years ago, you guys released Basecamp version two, which was a ground up rewrite, right? Like there was no reused yep. code. So no. a lot of a lot of people would say that that was like a failure of your original design to not be able to accommodate the things that you wanted, you know, Basecamp two point to do. Yes. And yes. What do you think about that? I'm trying to uh, think of a way of formulating this without swear words. <laughs> um, we wanted Basecamp to do something different. Why the hell would you want to use the same program if you want to do it, make it do something different? Like, what is the benefit of, of trying to, to change a chair into being a table? Yeah, it's all made of wood, but you know what? Maybe it's just easier to make a table. <laughs> yeah, you can technically use both of them to, to sit down and eat, right? You can just put your food on either the table or the chair. They're both made of wood. They both sort of are constructed out of uh, tools of carpentry. Um, yet they're different. We wanted a table, and we had a chair. Like, it was really that simple. And it's one of those other things where I'm finding that there's these, um, these mythical stories of software development. And one of the mythical stories of software development that we were arguing intensely internally when we were talking about, hey, should we actually try to make this chair into a, into a table, was um, Spolsky's I think 2001 article about how all rewrites are terrible. And he was basing that off basically the, uh, I think it the Mozilla rewrite and how they basically took five years to come up with a new modern browser and that the, how that was terrible and they lost ground and they went out of business basically, right? Um, so I think that that gets held up as like, oh shit, you can never rewrite code. Like if you rewrite code, you're going to end up like Mozilla, which by the way ended up being in a in a pretty decent place and I don't think they lost browser wars because of the rewrite. But even if that was true, right? 
even if that specific example for that code base of what, three million lines was actually true, how does that principle apply to a code base of maybe 20,000 lines? How does it apply to when you don't just want to sort of do the same thing? Like, there was still a rewrite. It wanted to do the same thing. It still wanted to be a browser, and wanting to be a browser means implementing a list of standards, right? And as Spolsky was correctly observing at the time, if you simply rewrite an app to do the same thing that the other one did, you're just going to end up with maybe one that's prettier, but it has a whole lot of new bugs. Like, end users will not appreciate what you did. They will not like you for it. So I think that's absolutely true. Don't rewrite your app if you're just going to write the same app. I mean, sounds obvious now that you say it, but <laughs> rewrite your app if you want a different app. We wanted a different app. Yes, it had many of the same elements to it. It had many of the same concepts, but they were rearranged and curated in completely different ways. Um, we still actually have a large contingency of customers on the classic version of Basecamp. Why would they want to still be on the classic version of Basecamp if the new version of Basecamp was the, was the same thing? They could just all move over, but they don't because it's not the same thing. It does different things. It made different choices. It's a different UI. All these things are different. I think the industry has an irrational fear of big rewrites. There, I said it. <laughs> I think that big rewrites have been demonized to a point where people are not even having them on the table as an option when they want to make different things, which is a great fucking travesty. Yes, there is a path where the old version of Basecamp could have mutated one story at the time into the new version of Basecamp, but it wouldn't work. It's not, it's not a great... We wouldn't have ended up with this version of Basecamp. We would have ended up with some hodgepodge other version of Basecamp. Um, so even though it's possible, and even though it's lower risk in the local maxima of lower risk being like you make one change at a time and you still have a whole working system, it was a far greater risk in the sense that we would end up with uh, an app that just wasn't enough better. We wanted to make a substantially big, better app, which meant making a substantially different app, which meant big rewrite, the way to go. One other thing I would like to get your opinion on, um, maybe a couple other things. If a lot of people, you know, back to kind of the active record thing, will tell you uh, some people kind of like defend active record, but in this sort of like passive aggressive way where it's like no active record's great i'm not saying there's anything wrong with active record if you're just building like some small little personal <laughs> app um then active oh, record yes. is totally the way to go right and i think what that does to people like me and probably to a lot of other people nobody wants to believe that they're just building some small little inconsequential app you know everyone right. believes that what they're working on is important yes. i'm building software that matters i'm trying to put out this real project you know yeah i really believe in what i'm doing so yep. it's not a small little app no matter right. what. So I, I can't use active record. What do you think of that? I think it's a, one of the master's sleight of hands. It's one of those master uh, sort of reverse psychology um, techniques of persuasion that are really fucking effective. <laughs> um, and I think that's what makes it so devious. And I get it all the time, right? I get it not only for programming, I get it for, oh, yeah, well, how you run a business is great when you just want to run a cute little lifestyle <laughs> business. Like, that's great. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things where it's hard to attack directly because then it looks like you're defensive, <laughs> which, well, no, what I do is really important. Like, who the fuck wants to say that, right? Um, you want other people to say that what you're doing is important. So... I think it's 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 one of those uh, it's one of those kill arguments that I've still not yet found a succinct counter to. I mean, let, let's be fair. I think it's complete fucking bullshit. But you you can't just say that, right? Like that's not you're not refuting an argument by saying that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> um, even though that's what the natural instinct is and and what you want to do, but. Um, I think it's just incredibly patronizing. And I think there's a lot of programming that is incredibly patronizing. And it stems from this sort of, as we talked about at the beginning, this notion that, oh, well, if you do important things, important things are complex. And important people and smart people only work on these very complex, um, sophisticated problems. And if you're simply just making fucking to-do lists, then, yeah, of course you don't need our fantastically uh, sophisticated body of knowledge here. Like, 
pat on the head, just go back to your little thing. And I know for a lot of people, like, that is, like, poison to their self-esteem, right? I should say, right? We all want to work on important things. I've since turned sort of just enough thick skin that my natural reaction is, well, go fuck yourself. But that, that's not a generally applicable strategy, I think, for most people. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't travel that well. Um, so what I try to focus the conversation more on is let's not talk about it so abstractly. Let's just look at some code. Let's look at before and after code. You tell me how you would like to structure things. I write them up how I would like to structure things. And then we compare the two pieces of code. And what I found is once you get down to that level of concreteness, it's very hard to defend that the emperor has no clothes. Like when you're just arraigning the emperor with no clothes next to four other guys that have clothes on. Oh, yeah, that guy doesn't have any clothes on. That's easy to see. But it's, it's much harder to see when he's parading down the street alone and everybody's saying, like, oh, can you see his fine clothes? You might be so um, intelligent if you can see the fine threats, right? Like, it's so easy to delude yourself into and go along with that. But you turn on the harsh lights and you just compare it to some other code that's not full of bullshit, needless complexity, and it's plain as day. So that's the... Um, argument I fall back to. Like, we have a lot of arguments in the Rails group and, and elsewhere, and whenever it sort of gets heated, I usually just say, oh, okay, let's look at some code. Let's just, uh, let's just draw it up and look at some code. And uh, that was the original promotion technique for Rails as well. I compared Rails code to a bunch of code from other environments, most particularly Java. And you would not believe the violent reactions that such harsh light brought on. Like, I would re-implement, I think, one of the early uh, examples I used was something I did on to list or something. And there was this public piece of code out on how to make a to-do list in some, um, in some Java framework. And I just compared the two things. And, like, here's this thing doing that, and here's that thing doing that. And it was just plain as day. Rails was just a more productive, better environment to, to do it in. Um, and I think that's where sort of the cognitive dissonance tips sometimes is... When you boil it down to just the code, like, you can talk all you want. We can all see the code. You can have all the fancy concepts in the world. We can all see the code. Um, and I think that that's, that's a great liberator. And I think that's why programming is so fucking appealing, is that it's not just all fucking French poetry analysis, right? Like we're, yeah, your analysis is good, and my analysis is good, and everything is equally good. And no, it just, at the end of the day, it's code. And some observer can read two pieces of code, and I found that in the majority of cases, the code speaks for itself. It doesn't even need to be decorated with arguments on the side, and you should be suspicious if it does. The arguments I've often seen is, yeah, okay, so that looks easier, but won't somebody please think of the children 10 years from now? Like, this looks great now, but it'll look terrible at some other point, right? Just show me the code. Like, show me how that's going to turn into terrible. And if you can't, then shut the fuck up. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, what sort of advice would you give to someone who's kind of in the position that we kind of talked about at the beginning of the call where, you know, they're being kind of seduced by some of this complexity and, you know, they're really interested in, you know, learning more about these patterns, but also at the same time starting to feel like that's what matters and that's not, and, and that's how you measure code quality and they haven't developed enough experience to get to that point where they've kind of came up with their own more refined mature uh, kind of opinion on software design what advice would you give to someone who's in that position i'd say to some extent this is your rite of passage like that is just the natural trajectory of learning and there's very little i, I can actually tell you until you start feeling the hurt yourself until you start recognizing the pain of the complexity you brought upon your code base I can't really do that much for you. I can show you code that I think is good and simple, um, but I don't think that there's any argument that's actually going to sort of turn you over. There's no magic thing, word, sentence, paragraph, essay that I can write that's going to convert you if you're already, or if you're currently in the enamored state of whatever complexity you're, you're in love with, right? It's, it's, it's kind of... Um, and now I'm really going to push some buttons, perhaps. But it's kind of um, 
the thing about um, anti-vaccinations, right? I'm, I'm fascinated with this um, thing going on right now where uh, a lot of people are rejecting um, vaccinations for sort of all these sorts of reasons. I'm not even going to get into that. I'm just, the parallel I want to draw is that if you believe that vaccinations are the devil, then any new study that comes out and says, oh, vaccinations are not the devil. They're actually great. And they saved 5 million kids over the past 15 years or whatever it is. Does not convince you. It does not turn you around. Like there are no amounts of sort of just pure facts like that. At least not if they come from a source you don't already hold incredibly dear. And if you're already in the pattern of thinking, oh yeah, I want a hexagon this and hexagon that, you probably don't hold me as a very authoritative source on anything. Um, so there's nothing I can say. I, simply from my position, um, there, there's nothing I can do. In, in the um, anti-vaccination examination of arguments and so on, what they found was the only ones that actually had any chance of reaching people who have decided that vaccinations are the devil and so forth, were people that they trusted. And in those specific cases, they're, um, they're personal doctors. And the personal doctors were kind of, in this one article, this one write-up, um, they were saying that uh, a lot of doctors are quite accommodating. Oh, yeah, if that's your personal beliefs, then okay, that's fine. And that that sort of emboldens people to say, well, then I don't give a shit about what any scientific study says. Uh, my doctor said this. So a lot of times it's not the message, it's who's, it's who's the speaker. And, and, and I'm just not, uh, I don't have standing, I'm not in a position to be the speaker for a lot of people on a lot of topics. And that's okay, I'll still be here when uh, you figure out that, uh, or not, um, that, that you want to listen to some of this because you felt some of the personal pain or, or you had some other realization that think, eh, Maybe I don't want to spend my day chasing in direction. Let's see if there's another path to go. And again, we're massively simplifying things for the purpose of conversation, but that's what humans do, and there we are. Well, I think that's maybe a good place to cut it off. We've been going for almost an hour now. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, dude. This has been probably the most fun podcast conversation that I've had to date. So thank you so much for giving me your time. Absolutely. My, uh, my pleasure. It's, it's a rare time where I, I can have a conversation with somebody where we actually agree all the time and then still feel like it was a good use of my time. Usually I prefer um, arguing with people who disagree with me, but um, you, you put the agreements uh, very well. So uh, let's pat ourselves on the back and say we were awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks. So uh, show notes for this episode are going to be found at uh, fullstackradio.com slash episode slash nine. If you had any uh, feedback or suggestions, be sure to hit me up on Twitter or shoot me an email based on the uh, email that's on the website there. Thanks, guys.